Well, you may have noticed in our confession from the wonderful Athanasian Creed, we, we snuck in a little bit of the Apostles' Creed at the bottom there. Forgiveness of sins, resurrection of the body, life everlasting. But that's appropriate because as we come to the Word of God, that, that is always our center and our focus, to look upon Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, who because of His costly, costly work and costly grace can forgive our sins, can raise bodies from the dead and souls up into heaven, and provide us with new life with the Father forever. So let's pray that God would do that now. Pray with me. Father, would you speak in and through your word? Holy Spirit, as we have confessed, Spirit, you are uncreated and immeasurable and eternal. So Holy Spirit, would you work in and through the word of God revealed to us to unite us to Christ. Lord, we come to you. We come to you needy today with so many different needs. Lord, who can even know what's going on in everybody's life, the things that weigh heavy on our hearts, but you know, you know all things and you care. And that's why you've drawn us here to remind us once again that it is your kindness, it is a grace of kindness to lead us to repentance, to turn away from what doesn't satisfy our autonomy, our taking our own authority, our coming to you and analyzing the king and trying to figure it out and protect ourselves and our systems, to turn us from those empty cisterns and, and broken clay pots and to turn us to yourself. So Father, would you work to lift up our heads that we might see the glory of Jesus and ourselves in him through your preached word now. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So the uh, sermon title, Who's the Boss? Who is the boss of you, by the way? <laughs> I see some of these wives, but, uh, you know, no, I'm just kidding, I'm kidding. Who is the boss? Who really does have ultimate authority in our lives? Reflexively, who has ultimate allegiance? This is the question that Mark is asking us in this passage. As we will see, it's a question that everyone has to answer. So we find Jesus here doing something pretty crazy, actually. And he's already gone into the temple, cleansed it. It's his father's house. It's to be a house of prayer, as we heard last week, a house for all people. The court of the Gentiles isn't to be a, you know, a money exchange. The court of the Gentiles is for the nations to come in and get to taste and see that, that God is real and his promises are true. So here's Jesus walking around again in the temple courts, and he is confronted by these religious leaders who, and I'm stealing this phrase from my, my dad, uh, seem to be quite proud of their position on the rules committee. They are the rules committee, and they're going to make sure that everybody is following the rules, and Jesus is not very good at following the rules, because there's a new and true and greater rule in the universe, and that is that all of these little things are going to be fulfilled in him, in his person, in his work. So they come to him with a question about his authority to trap him and to kill him. These folks who want to maintain their system, their sense of being in control, they have learned to operate in a way with God, not submitting to God, but partnering with God, wherein they feel like they've got a little bit of power. 
such that they can accomplish what they think needs to happen. That is, let's be good enough and righteous enough so that the Lord will bring His Messiah. These are like folks who have ears but don't hear. They have eyes but they can't see. And so in a brilliant stroke of irony in Mark's gospel, we see that these folks come in their own fear of man to question the authority of Jesus when he is actually the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. They have ears, but they can't hear. Remind me of this little illustration of two young boys at a wedding. They've just heard the wedding, uh, that the preacher preach and do the wedding ceremony, and now they're sitting around at the reception, and one of the boys leans over to his friend and asks a simple question. How many wives can a man have? And the other little friend leans over to the boy and goes, didn't you hear the preacher? It's obviously 16. Four better, four worse, four richer, and four poorer. They had ears, but they did not hear. And so we need to understand that what Mark is focusing in on here is us. Our propensity to have this expression of our fallen condition, that we come to Jesus with what seems like an innocent question, but really it's based on the presupposition of questioning his love, his goodness, his power, and his authority. Because we work really hard in our lives to set up things that just kind of make us feel like, you know what, I'm doing okay, and everything is under control. It's their blindness and their deafness that lead to unbelief, taking on false authority for themselves. And then as the passage tells us, they're afraid of the crowds. And this has dire consequences. For, for, for these religious leaders to answer, we do not know. That's just not what rabbis do. And so again, we're here as those who want authority for ourselves. I'm reminded of the famous last stanza of uh, W.E. Henley's poem, Invictus. You remember it, you've heard it. But so often in my life, and I believe in yours too, you know, I kind of, I want God for the good things, the things that make me happy, the things that so often presume to preserve the little system that I've set up around myself. And yet these are the words that my heart says, if I were to be honest. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Now, of course, if you're in church and you say you love Jesus, we all know that, you know, we're not supposed to live that way. But functionally in our lives, we have many functional and false saviors, many idols, many misplaced points of authority. God wants to meet us there because these are things for us that don't need to be taught. I had a kind of a joke with my parents when I was growing up, you know, about my, my first word. You know, was it mommy or daddy? No, apparently my first word was mine, <laughs> right? Because I was the oldest kid in my house and the youngest and the middle child. I was the only. I was the glory and the special. So I didn't need to be taught that. But if you want to run an experiment with your grandkids, put two two-year-olds in one room with one toy. And you're going to get them quoting the last stanza of Invictus like really fast. It's in us. Don't mess with my authority. Don't mess with my system. Don't mess with my temple. Don't mess with my understanding of God. Don't mess with my understanding of how I get to God and what I must do and strive toward God so that God finally provides relief and salvation. There's just layers of irony in this text. 
And I mean, we, we do have a problem with authority in our day and age, don't we? We don't really like being told what to do. I found this great little meme this week from a page I follow called Medical Humor. I have no idea why I follow this page. I know nothing about medicine. But I thought it was a funny meme. And if you don't know what a meme is, come to me afterwards and let me show you this meme and explain it to you. So this is about a doctor's office. The patient says, Doc, Doc, why am I not getting any better? The doctor responds, Well, you aren't exercising, you aren't eating well, and you aren't taking your medicine. And then the patient with a pensive face looks up at the doctor. No, no, not that. It must be something else. <laughs> How many times has your doctor told you to do some stuff and you've done it for about three or four days? You're like, okay, you drag yourself down to CVS, you get the vitamin B gummies, three days later, you've completely forgotten. We have a problem with authority. It's in us. And so we can't, we cannot demonize the religious leaders because they're so bad. And if we had been there, we wouldn't have been. No. We'd have been right there with him. Because Jesus is a threat. He's a threat to any system in our lives in which we live by any sort of trying to earn his favor by the good works we do. Jesus is a threat to religion. And I realize this is painting with a wide brush. And I want to be humble and careful with this. But, you know, test the spirits. Read the books. All of man... All of man's made and invented religions have this in common. You better be a good enough person. You better be a good enough person to somehow appease the demands of the gods so that you can get into their good favor and good graces and hopefully they will bless you. That is the heart of the rules committee and the regulations of religiosity. That was really the heart of the system in place at that time during the second temple period because we're already told that their operating principle isn't faith in the authority of God, but fear in the convictions of men. Mark invites us to be threatened as well. Not, not in a cowering way, but, but to allow our hearts to be opened by the good news of the gospel and, and for Jesus to come in with his light and to bring from darkness into light those places in our life where we are either claiming false authority for ourselves or giving it away to false gods. The main point of the text is that Jesus has authority. He silences these guys. He makes a mockery of them. It's ironic. I mean, they're showing up with the checkers board and he's playing 4D chess. By the end of this thing, they've come with the full weight and power of the Sanhedrin and they can't answer a simple question. And he goes, well, I'm not going to tell you anything either. That's the main point. He has and is true authority. But the question, Mark is always pushing the question, will we trust in the authority of Jesus in our own lives? When it gets hard, when life isn't working out as I had planned, when there's trouble in family or marriage or with loved ones or at work, will I go back? Will I go back to, to the empty well of my own self-preservation strategies, self-protecting strategies, false selves and coping mechanisms? Or will I lose my life so that I can gain it? Because all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to Christ. And we see this question and its main point teased out in four ways here. The first is that Jesus pursues. The second is that Jesus pushes the question. Thirdly, Jesus answers. And finally, Jesus calls. Jesus pursues. This is Jesus' third incursion into Jerusalem 
during Holy Week. Uh, The first incursion was at the triumphal entry. We're told that he comes in to look around. The second was last week. He comes to cleanse the temple. And this time, he comes into the temple to walk around knowing that there is great opposition toward him at this time. We are in day number five of the Passion Week. And here's why this is important. We've had the triumphal entry. We have the cleansing of the temple and the cursing of the fig tree. And now we're on Tuesday, day number five of Passion Week. We're going to be here for a few weeks because day number five basically centers on five major controversies regarding the person of Jesus as it relates to the Jewish system of religiosity and its center of the temple. They are trying to trap and discredit Jesus and undermine what they believe to be his lack of knowledge or false knowledge of God's word, Torah, the first five books of Moses in particular. It's interesting that Mark keeps us here for a few weeks, isn't it? Have you ever thought about this in Passion Week? Triumphal entry, cleansing, fig tree, and then all of a sudden we get two, two and a half chapters of Tuesday of debates and dialogues and controversies and interpretations and who is this guy and how dare he do and say these things that he's dared to do and say. On Wednesday, the Gospels record nothing. We don't know what happens on Wednesday of Passion Week except that we presume that Jesus would go back to Bethany to be with his friends, to rest, to relax, to Sabbath. And then, of course, Thursday brings us to the Last Supper, and Friday is the cross. So on this Tuesday, at the beginning of a barrage of controversies and questions, the Sanhedrin, which is the ruling body in those days, around the Jewish nation and its temple, they send the trifecta. They send in their best three, right? The chief priests the scribes, and the elders. The chief priests who are the head of the sacrificial system, the scribes who are gifted in interpreting the law and have the Torah memorized so they'll know if Jesus is right and wrong, and the elders who are charged with kind of keeping order and rule over God's people in Jerusalem. Multiple judges and multiple witnesses, and it is that Jesus himself is being subpoenaed. Now we see here that there is much intrigue. The the weight of these questioners and their question would have been significant to the Jewish people. I think it's harder for us to be written into this story. But these are a people who for hundreds of years have been under uh, oppression. They are most recently under a severe and heavy-handed Roman oppression. Many Jews are are wondering, Lord, I I thought we were only supposed to have one exile. I thought you said there was one exile, Babylon, by your grace you brought people Back, Ezra and Nehemiah rebuilt the temple, reinstituted sacrifices, rebuilt the wall, and, and now we're enslaved again? Now we're oppressed again? The Romans were extremely effective at putting down rebellion. And all the Jews would have remembered the temporary victory of the Maccabees, only to once again be squelched by the heavy hand of the empire. And yet there was anticipation. They had read the book of Daniel. They knew about the 70 weeks. They understood that Malachi was 400 years ago, and so certainly God must be ready to send his Messiah soon. There was a fervor around the messianic promises of God in the Old Testament. He's going to be a warrior. He's going to come with a sword. He's going to get rid of the Romans. But Jesus? Look, one scholar or pastor 
said, in the eyes of these guys, Jesus was nothing more than a pseudo-rabbi. He had not gone to the right school. He had not been ordained in the right way. He had not worn the black robe and the pointy hat. He just didn't have it quite together as a religious person. He didn't fit into their system. And we're with these folks too, right? When Jesus comes to threaten our idols, we send out our best defense mechanisms. Oh, no, 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 it can't can't be that if we're being threatened. You know, you can't take that. You can't mess with that. You can't move that piece of cheese. And just like these folks in the Sanhedrin, we we like successful people. Tall, good-looking, beard, like Jesus had. I mean, I realize I'm describing Pastor John, and he's not here, and that's not, you know, I'm just... But like, no, we are drawn to success. It's physiological. There's tons of data behind it. So who is this guy? Who is this podunk carpenter from Nazareth? How dare he? He doesn't possess the proper bona fides, credentials. His resume and CV are greatly lacking. He didn't go to Rabbi Harvard. And yet this is the guy who comes into the temple, not dressed in fine linens like a religious person, but dressed like, you know, a plumber in those days. Jesus is wearing the, you know, he's got his robe on. It's Levi's and maybe a collared shirt, maybe. He challenges them at the center. And you can see, therefore, why. This is a throwing down of the gauntlet. And so their intrigue when it comes to Jesus, who's totally undeserving of their loyalty, must actually be an inquisition. They are biased toward guilt. And we already know why. Mark's been telling us for 11 chapters. It's just coming to a head. This is the climactic moment of the Gospels. Why are they biased toward his guilt? It's not because they're a bunch of mean people. It's because they don't like the gospel. And in our religiosity, and in our rules and systems, we are no different. They don't like his gospel. It's too much, it's too scandalous to say that God, the Father, would send his one and only Son, who would be the pure and spotless Lamb, the second Adam, not sin, live perfectly according to the law, take the weight of all sin and wrath and the good justice of God, die for it, atone for it, and rise again on the third day. It just doesn't fit. So not works, not might, not merit, not swords, not Jewish braveheart, but the crucified carpenter who lays down his life for the sins of the world. And if this is true, not only to add scandal to the nature of the Messiah, but to multiply it by his work. If you're saved by faith alone, by grace Through faith, simple faith, weak faith. Dumb people have faith. Smart people have faith. Rich, poor, weak, wounded, sick, sore, poor, powerless, everybody, the leper, the sinful woman, children even, for goodness sake. Then anybody can come into this kingdom? You know, you you don't need to get right and, and do it all and make sure you take a long shower with the right soap before you jump in the bath. Just believe in the one that God has sent. And even lepers can be cleansed and healed and everybody who's outside the camp by faith alone can be brought in. It's too much. And that's why Jesus pushes the question. See, his going to Jerusalem was his pursuit of you and me. He knew it was a wild thing to go back and walk around the temple. But he pursues us precisely that so for us and them he can push the question. They ask him two things. What right do you have? What standard? What basis? 
What ultimate authority do you have to say and do these things? And who gave it to you? These would have been two classic ways uh, for the rabbinical scholars to trap someone in false teaching. What right? What basis? What justifies it? Now, if Jesus is anything less than God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, the incarnate God on earth in flesh, he has no basis and nothing that would justify his coming into God's house to cleanse the temple and to fix the broken system. But if he is, then Jesus' response to them is interesting because he basically pushes the question right back on them. Who are you? What's your foundation? What's your basis? It's as if he says to the religious leaders, I see that you can, you can count up instances of you know, things not being right in the world, but how do you account for those things? How do you account for those things? Not can you, you know, I, I have friends, for example, who I deeply care about, who, you know, and maybe they believe all of this really ultimately doesn't mean anything. I mean, we feel like it does because we're Americans on the very edge of decadence and we love Hallmark, so we feel like it means something. But at the end of the day, we're all just animals, matter, motion, time, chance, you know, glorified and complex flesh computers. So these friends of mine who I love, I mean, they can go around and they can count up instances of evil. But the question is, man, in a universe without God where there's no objective and ultimate truth, there's no foundation and anchor for your soul, how do you account for those things? This is the question Jesus is pushing, and it's the question everyone must answer. So I love his response in verse 30, answer me. The question through the mouth of Jesus and the gospel of Mark comes to us today. Answer me. What can save you? Right? Enough money, enough friends, enough influence, enough comfort in your life to not be, you know, perpetually disturbed by that, that pain in your back and, you know, that pain in your life? Answer me. Mark pushes this question on us not to beat us over the head with a 48-pound Bible. No, that's the work of the system and the rules committee. Instead, it's an invitation. It's a gracious invitation. When you see Jesus in the scriptures, so different from all the machinations of men's religious ideas, do you recognize and submit to his authority? Will you recognize and submit to his authority in your life? Now, here's what's ironic about this. These religious leaders, by infusing into their system their own works, their own righteousness, their own sense of holiness, by which then they could encourage God to perhaps send his Messiah, they don't actually make God more holy. By doing that, they make him less holy. The more pomp, the more circumstance, the more robes, the more gold, the more all of it, it doesn't exalt the power of God. It actually minimizes it. It makes him less king, less necessary to save because in this you get more man, you get less grace, you get more I can do it. Instead of last week's flaming sword, remember, that blocks the garden, the only one who can lift the flaming sword is the one who the sword falls upon, that's Jesus. Instead of that being a flaming sword of God's justice that must fall upon God himself who keeps his promises, they've made it the sword and the stone. Walking around trying to pull it out. Who's going to be the strong man? Who's going to be the religious ubermensch that has enough grit and gumption to work their way to God? 
This is why Jesus pushes the question. And yet he doesn't leave them alone. He answers their question with a question. Classic rabbi move. Also classic parenting move. You know, dad, can I have this candy? Let me answer your question with a question. Have you already eaten your broccoli? Classic rabbi move. But what is Jesus doing here? He wants to get to their heart. He is loving them. Jesus was so mad at all the religious people, he beat him up and yelled at him. No, he didn't. He loved them. Jesus loved Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, rulers, and elders. He loved the Sanhedrin. He's trying to get to their heart. He sees right through them. There's idols there. He sees that they, they love power on the one hand. You see what our idols do to us? They love power on the one hand, and they fear man on the other. What an awful God to serve. Just keep putting stuff up on that altar. Keep putting stuff up on that altar, and maybe you'll feel like you have enough power, but you're still going to be afraid. You're still going to cower. You're still a slave to this religious system. You're not a son. You're not a daughter. You're not adopted. He wants to get to their heart because he loves them. Will they be honest or not? And it's amazing because they answer Jesus' question and they lie. It's in our text, right? They they go from the glory of God. They have one job, by the way. These guys have one job in this system, which is to protect the temple for the glory of God, who comes to bring his Shekinah presence to the temple and forgive his people through the sacrificial system. They have one job to do that. And they go from their one job to, well, gee, I don't know. I mean, if we say John the Baptist was real and John the Baptist and Jesus are tied together, then if we say John the Baptist is real, that's like saying Jesus is real. And we can't do that even though we think Jesus is false and not a true prophet. We can't do that because then the people will be mad at us. They are exposed. It's really a brilliant question then, this John the Baptist thing. It seems a little weird. Why would Jesus bring up John the Baptist? Well, if they choose John the Baptist, they are also choosing Jesus. To agree with the ministry of John the Baptist, to claim to be a prophet of God, is to agree, agree with the message of his ministry. He called people out into the desert, into the water, and said, repent and believe the kingdom of God is near. And yeah, Jesus didn't go to Jewish Harvard and he didn't get ordained at the temple. He got ordained by the Trinity itself in the Jordan River. Jesus has trapped the trappers. And one scholar puts it this way, Craig Evans, in the Gospel of Mark for the religious leaders, this is truly an embarrassing public display of cowardice. The one job of the legal scholars and the rabbis was to have an answer. And yet they have been completely laid bare, bare that it is their fear, it is their lack of authority, they don't know who they are, that has left them speechless and ignorant. You see, they do think they know the answer to this question. They do think that Jesus is not truly a prophet, nor was John. And yet they are too afraid to say so, thus negating their one responsibility endowed with authority, and that is to protect the temple of God. As Evan says, this is truly a pathetic passage wherein we are shown the extent that our idols dehumanize and silence us. Ooh, dang, that'll preach right there. Because that's us. That's us where we claim authority and autonomy in our own lives. And God is so faithful to you and to me to time and time again bring us to the end of ourselves Bring us to the end of the things that we give authority that have no business with it. 
much less ourselves. When we're standing on the bow saying, I'm the master and the commander of my own ship, the Lord's like, and sending in the iceberg, because I love you. God is so faithful. And that's why where this story ends, you know, isn't only in the silence of the religious leaders, but in the hope of the gospel that we have as Christians. Jesus pursues, he pushes the question, he answers them boldly, but finally Jesus calls. We're confronted in this text too. If Mark is showing us anything here about the authority and the sovereignty of God through his son, by his spirit, it's that there's no neutrality. We don't get to politic with Jesus like they were trying to do. Well, we'll do it this way or no, we can't do that. No, he's either the Lord or he's not. But if he's the Lord, he's the Lord who makes a way. As John said last week, we don't merely have access to God. You know, come back to my house and you can be my servants. You're really, really bad sinners, tisk tisk. You know, I saw what you did last night. You can come back in, you can be slaves. No, we are adopted, not just access, but adoption, adoption into the family of God. So thinking about, back about those little boys, you know, how many wives can a man have? Is it one? No, it's 16. Jesus chooses one. He chooses one wife for himself, his bride, his church, and he has promised to be faithful to her. Yeah, but I stray, I fail, I give away false authority, I try to analyze the king. He knows. And like a loving father in his faithfulness, he pursues us time and time again. The truth is, of course, we all put authority in something. The invitation of this text is to make it a savior not a system. Make it someone who knows your name and loves you and can keep you, not any sort of self-preservation strategy which will ultimately fail you. And so in the same way that that last stanza from the Invictus poem is in some ways a, a monument to man's autonomy, there's another stanza that we will sing here in a few minutes that I believe and I hope by God's mercy reminds us of how deeply Jesus loves us, that his authority is a loving authority. The first verse from On Christ the Solid Rock, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' own blood and his righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so thankful that you use your authority in our lives to draw us to yourself time and time again. You are patient and loving and good as the first fruits of the new creation, our older brother, to bring us often kicking and screaming back to the Father, to remind us of who we are. Unlike these religious leaders who don't know who they are and what they believe, your authority is stable and certain and solid, and we stand on you, our solid rock. So Jesus, today, you stand at the door and you knock. Come in. And what do we come into? But a feast, a meal, this meal. You don't invite us in to, to beat us up. You know that we're weary. You know that we're often heavy laden. You know that we have good days and bad days. No, you invite us in to sit down and rest and eat and feast on your promises. So Lord, as we come to this table, I pray we would just get a, a visceral 
taste and see that you are a good glimpse of how you, King Jesus, exercise your authority. That you did not come to be served, but to serve and to give your life as a ransom for many. Amen.